Let me invite you to take your Bible and make your way to Psalm 63. We're going to look at Psalm 63. This is a Psalm of David. And uh, one thing I love about the Psalms of, of David is they, they kind of give us a, uh, an inner glimpse into his heart and his life. And uh, we know the Bible describes David as a particular kind of man. How does the Bible describe David? As a man after God's own heart, right? And uh, I've always loved that. He wasn't a perfect man, but uh, you can see through the Psalms his heart for the Lord. And I think as we glean through the Psalms his heart for the Lord, it's really a challenge to our own life uh, as to our heart being set upon God. And we learn a lot of his faith in God, and we learn from that for our life as well. So Psalm 63 is one that I cherish, and uh, I want to bring us through this passage, verse 1 down through verse 11, and uh, title of the message is A Thirsty Soul. David's writing here, and he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where no water is. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. The mouths of all liars, of mouths of liars, will be stopped. David gives this psalm at a particular point in his life where he's in the Judean wilderness and he expresses his thirst for the Lord and his longing for the Lord. And uh, I think there's great spiritual application there, but I also want to bring us through this text and just contemplate some things. We think about what it means to be thirsty for a moment. Have you ever been uh, thirsty in our life? We've probably all been thirsty at some point or another. If you've been out in the sun working hard or playing a sport or doing something, we all get that way because God designed us that way, that we depend on water, we depend on sustenance, right? And much like we need physical water for our physical life, There's also spiritual nourishment that we need uh, that only God can give us. Uh, We're not only physical beings. We are also spiritual beings. And so God created us with that uh, ingrained in us. And there's a deep spiritual need in all of us. And the need is not so clearly known by, you know, the depraved humanity around us. But once a sinner is saved, once we come to know Jesus and we know the Holy Spirit in us, we've been given resurrection and we're indwelled by Him uh, we know that we need this spiritual sustenance in our life. I've always loved uh, what Augustine said. It's a quote from him, uh, and it expresses our need of our creator of, of God. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And truly, that expresses how that man is unsatisfied. He's not complete uh, without his creator. Uh, As Paul would write in Colossians, he said, you're complete in him. You're made complete in Christ. And that really brings us to David, who's the author of this psalm. 
And uh, David, he's a Christian that knows the wonder and glory of God. He knows what it is to uh, be near to the Lord. He knows that he's in need of the Lord uh, through all that he's going through. And we find that he's thirsting for God. He's thirsting right off the bat uh, here in this first verse. And we ask, why is he thirsty for God? Well, I mentioned that he's in a wilderness right now in his life, uh, the Judean wilderness, and I'll speak on that in just a moment. Uh, but he's far from the Lord, he feels, particularly the place of worship, uh, the place of worship where uh, the Jews would worship in the tabernacle. So David's situation here uh, in this psalm, it presents really a challenge to our own souls uh, in examining our own hearts and our thirst. Uh, for God and being near Him and uh, worshiping Him and these sorts of things. So I want to bring out a few points to you here tonight. Notice number one in our notes, we see the psalmist thirst for God. And that psalmist we know is David. And so David's heart here, David's heart is to be near God. He longs to be near unto Him. He longs to be able to worship Him uh, the way that he ought to worship Him. And look at verse 1. He says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek for you, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where no water is. I want to pause there for a moment and just notice how God, how David expresses, he says, oh God, you are my God, Uh, talking to the one true God, that first word there he uses for God is Elohim, it's the same uh, Hebrew word and name for God in Genesis 1. Uh, Elohim. It refers to God and uh, really expresses his triune nature, if you look at the root word there. Uh, so he's, he's calling out to this one true God, the creator God. He says, God, you are my God. He's claiming this God as his own God. So, so God, who is the God over all creation, he's also the God over his covenant people. And this shows the very personal and intimate nature that David uh, relationship that David has with God, that he's his God. There is no other God but the one true God. Because this one true God, this creator God, is David's God. Now, you see that a personal nature here in this relationship. It is an intimate relationship. It is a close-knit one. It's David and God. Much like he expresses in uh, the beloved Psalm, Psalm 23.1. The Lord is whose shepherd? My shepherd, right? There's a personal nature there in which David is expressing from his own heart. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He knows the Lord is going to take care of him as his sheep. And so how sweet this language is of David. It reveals that when trying situations threaten the people of God, they can rely on this truth, that God is their God. He's always their God. That never changes. Uh, We are his. We belong to him as his people. Uh, The psalmist said in Psalm 100 and verse 3, Know that the Lord, He is God. It's He who made us. We are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. That is is something that's so comforting to us as Christians, as believers, that we belong to the one true God, that we truly are His sheep. And as uh, our shepherd, He's with us. Um, We see a New Testament uh, connection here in John 10. If you go read John 10, it's, it's a wonderful passage just about uh, the shepherd and the sheep, Jesus being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, and uh, we as believers are his sheep. But he says in John ten three, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. And I love how this describes us. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. 
how personal that is for us as believers, how intimate that is in our relationship and fellowship with God, uh, that he's our shepherd and we are his sheep and he calls us by name. And, and so David, you, you see through David's writings in the Psalms, a very personal, close, intimate fellowship that he has with God. But notice what he says as he, after this, Oh God, you are my God. But then he says, Earnestly I seek you. Earnestly I seek you. Now, the Hebrew verb there, earnestly, means to be on the lookout for or to search for. Uh, we, we think of times when we've earnestly looked for something or for someone with our eyes and our minds being on full alert, full awareness. Um, if you've ever arrived at an airport and you've had somebody coming to pick you up and you know what car they're in, you know, you're out there on the curb and you're uh, looking all these cars coming by and passing through and what are, what are you focused on? You're looking for that specific person and that specific vehicle to come around the corner and just pick you up. Now, I've been in several situations where I waited there for a while and I wondered if they forgot about me. Am I, am I going to see this car I'm supposed to get in with, right? The one where I belong. Uh, and, and so you look and you look and you, you're looking with intention because you're, you're ready to go if you've been on a plane and get in that car to where you belong and get on your way. And, and this is the kind of earnestness that David is talking about. He knows that he belongs with God to be near to him, but at the moment he doesn't feel near to him. He feels as if he's somewhat separated for a reason we'll see in a moment. So he earnestly is seeking after God. There's a reference here in Isaiah 26, 9, I think is a good communication of this. this. This Isaiah writes and says, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Another note about this verb earnestly is that, it's, is that it is related to the noun uh, for for the early dawn. So the verb can be understood, early do I seek you. In fact, some translations will put earnestly as early. So uh, it conveys uh, that truth there that uh, there's an earnestness and an earliness of seeking the Lord. But what does this all reveal about David's heart? He's so thirsty for God that as the dawn arrives, his pursuit is God first thing. That's how eager he is. That's how Earnest he is in wanting the Lord's presence, uh, the fellowship of that presence. Now, Charles Spurgeon comments on this, and he says, Observe the eagerness implied in the time mentioned. He will not wait for noon or cool eventide. He is up with a cock crowing to meet his God. Communion with God is so sweet that the chill of the morning is forgotten and the luxury of the couch is despised. The morning is the time for dew and freshness, and the psalmist consecrates it to prayer and devote devout fellowship. So Spurgeon comments on that with uh, warm words, I think. But David will say in another passage in Psalm 5 and verse 3, he says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So all of this expresses David's earnestness, his eagerness, his, uh, his heart towards the Lord. And I think that this is a good expression for all of us as Christians that uh, we who know him, we ought to long for a deep and intimate fellowship with God. It should be the desire of our hearts. We ought not to go through our Christian life uh, missing out on the best part of our Christian life. Uh, being a Christian is not just about going to heaven. Uh, there's a lot that think that. 
being a Christian means that you know God. You genuinely know Him. And uh, part of knowing Him is cultivating a fellowship and a walk with Him. I've always loved this quote from John Bunyan, a Baptist of years ago. He who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find Him the rest of the day. And I think I've experienced that on some occasion, where if I've neglected my prayer or scripture in the morning, that the day just gets away from you. Now, I know that doesn't mean that you have to do it in the morning to be a good Christian. There are uh, some Christians that prefer to read at night, and that's fine. Uh, maybe it's the middle of the day. Uh, but the most important thing is that we cultivate this fellowship with the Lord. But notice what David manifests here in verse 1. He says, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where no water is. So there you see that picture of, of thirsting. David's expressing this, this thirst uh, analogy at a point in his life uh, when he's in the wilderness of Judea. Most of your Bibles have probably mentioned that at the beginning of the psalm. David, when he's in the wilderness of, of, of Judah. And the land there, the land wilderness, in the wilderness is, is dry. Um, the word there that's conveyed of, of dry, it's stronger than that. It, it conveys a, uh, a message of being parched, of being truly just drawn out and just no moisture whatsoever. Um, and as you look at the picture he's given us, it really conveys that truth. Now, if you ever have, I've been to the Judean wilderness, I've been in Israel, but if you see pictures of it even, if you look it up online, it truly is a dry, barren place. Uh, so when you're kind of seeing that landscape and uh, seeing it, you can kind of picture David being out there. And uh, not only, I'm sure he had physical thirst, he knew where he could find water there, but there's, there's a spiritual application there that he's giving. That just like it's barren and hot and dry and there's no uh, moisture, there's no water, that's how he feels spiritually uh, in this sense. Now, why was David out in the wilderness at this point in his life? Well, some believe this psalm may fit when he was driven from Jerusalem because of Absalom. Uh, maybe it was a little earlier when he was on the run from Saul. Uh, there, there's two options there. Uh, but what you find here in verse 2, you'll notice this. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. There's a connection there to the sanctuary, the place of worship, which would have been the tabernacle, right, in that day and time. So he feel, he's driven from this. He's driven from being able to be near to where his power and glory is. And so while David's imagery here portrays a physical thirst, his words are about his spiritual thirst. He feels as if he's driven from that place of knowing God's power and glory, that place of worship, the place of the sanctuary. Now, if you look at the time frame of when David did have to flee because of Absalom, he did believe that he would be brought back there. In 2 Samuel 15 and verse 25, or at least he indicates that if it's the Lord's will, he would. When he's on the run from Absalom, he's fleeing. The Bible says, then the king said to Zadok, who had carried the Ark of the Covenant to him, he tells him, carry the Ark back to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his, dwell, both it and his dwelling place. So David, you see how he was driven from Jerusalem and from that area because of Absalom, but he believes that if it's God's will, he will be brought back to God's habitation, the place where his glory dwells. And that truly expresses David's heart of just being near to the Lord uh, in worship. 
Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. So all through the Psalms, you're going to see this kind of language, this kind of expression of David's longing just to be near to the Lord and to see his power, to see his glory. Now, just consider this for a moment in a similar scenario for Christians. Think about ourselves for a moment and by way of application. How spiritually thirsty would we be if we had no Bible? Think, think about what your Christian life would be if you didn't have your own copy of Scripture that you can take with you and have with you. I mean, nowadays we've got it. We're, we're, we're tremendously blessed with an abundance of Scripture, not just physically, but you've got a phone in your pocket that you can access Scripture wherever you're at. But think about if you didn't have that sort of thing. Or maybe if you lived in a place that, that was banned. Maybe you're in persecuted country where you weren't allowed to have a copy of the scriptures. There are Christians right now in persecuted nations that, that don't have the freedom and the privilege that we have right now to gather like we do. I mean, here we are together with God's people. We don't have to worry about uh, the authorities walking in here and uh, hauling some of us off to jail because we're gathering in the name of Christ. We have an air-conditioned building in the heat of the summer, electricity, and here we are gathered together. We can feed upon the word of God as much as we want. David, he's driven from the tabernacle. He's driven from the place of worship. So he, he feels separate, right? Uh, and so you think about this. There's many Christians who are thirsty for what we enjoy week after week. Uh, so it's important to evaluate maybe our own hearts uh, in light of the longing of David's heart for the Lord. Uh, notice with me, letter B, we see David's heart has been changed by God. So we think, why does David... Seek God in such a way. Why does he have this? Why does he long after the presence of God and the glory of God and uh, being able to worship God freely? Well, because he knows the depth of God's grace and love imparted to him. That's why. And that's really the difference in us. Why is it that we've come to church here tonight? Why is that? Because we've been changed by the grace of God. We know who Christ is. We know what his love has done for us. Now look at what he says in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Now what is God's steadfast love? His steadfast love here it refers to God's relationship with the people or an individual. Faithfulness, goodness, graciousness. So he, he's referencing the grace and love of God that has been bestowed upon David as his people. So this steadfast love, it is the steadfast love of God towards his covenant people. Now, think of this for a moment. How great is that love towards his people? Well, when we think about the love of God towards us as his people, there's no words that can accurately describe it, right? It's a love connection that is deeper and wider than any kind of love. It's a love that grips his people and does not let them go. There is no way to measure it. It's far beyond what our minds can fathom and deeper than any other love that we've ever known. When you consider the love of God towards us and what he's done in Christ. Psalm 36, 7, David says this, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And this love of God that I'm talking about, it is chiefly expressed in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It is chiefly expressed and shown to us in the redemptive work of God the Son, His death, burial, and resurrection. Paul writes in Romans, 
5 and verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ, God's, God in his love sent Christ to die for us, not because we were good or had any good. He didn't wait on us to get good. The key there is that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of him, he did this for us. But notice what David says about this steadfast love. He says, because your steadfast love is better than something. Your steadfast love is better than what? Life. Wow. Your steadfast love is better than life. Now, how many other things could we say are better than life itself? So many things, right? I mean, life is everything to us. Life is everything to us. It's the very essence of our existence. And in our existence, in our life, we get to enjoy things that God has given us. So why does he say such a thing? Life with all of its benefits as well as troubles, all of it in life changes, right? We all experience change in life. But God's faithful love to his people never changes. Never changes. His loyal love can provide blessings for his people and it can change uh, and it can change the trials of life so that by means of them, we are enriched through them. His love doesn't change no matter what we're experiencing, right? So, so though David was exiled into the wilderness here, the Judean wilderness, his situation of suffering did not change God's steadfast love towards him. And he knows that. So oftentimes we as Christians, we go through dark moments and valleys, and it's easy to get really down, isn't it? But one thing that always lifts me up, and it ought to lift all of us up, is the fact that the steadfast love of God towards me, it doesn't change whether I'm on a mountaintop or I'm in a valley. Nothing we experience can change the love of God towards his people. God's love expressed towards us does not depend on the ups and downs of life. It is a supernatural love that transcends all that we could ever experience. Now, one of the great passages on the love of God is found in Romans 8, and I want to read it to you if you'll turn there with me. Romans 8 and verse 35 through verse 39. Romans 8 and verse 35 through verse 39 for a moment. This passage is often, often quoted, but I, really to grasp the whole of what the love of God here is, you need to read all of Romans 8. <laughs> all of Romans 8 and especially uh, verse 28 and forward. But you'll notice that the connection of God's love here. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to, the slaughter, to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul brings us through basically every possibility that you could think of, and there's not anything that can separate us from the love of God. Why is that? Because the love of God upon his people, it didn't even start when you got saved. It started long before you were ever saved. I mean, when you consider this, and, and this is where it ties into what we talked about Sunday morning about the doctrine of election, uh, you read verse 29 and on forward, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And he connects all of this. Who shall separate us from the love of God? 
Nothing can, right? Nothing can. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. It's an eternal love, which means that it's a love that cannot end or change. Jehardus Voss said it well, and he said this, The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that, it never, that, he, is that, that he never began being God. He never began. And what is God? God is love. So with this steadfast love, what would this bring us to do? This kind of ties a little bit to what we looked at Sunday morning, Ephesians 1. But he says, my lips will praise you because of this steadfast love. That's better than life. He says, my lips will praise you. He goes on to say in verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hand. What other response could we give to such love other than praise, other than this blessing, blessing him, which we saw Sunday morning is an expression of praise and worship. So we need to be like David in these verses. We need to be thirsty, thirsty for, for, for him, longing for him, and, and understanding how rich his steadfast love is towards us that should provoke us to praise. Notice with me number two tonight, and I'll try to come through this text. Notice the psalmist's thoughts on God. His thoughts on God. Number two, his thoughts here are rooted in the next couple of verses. And as we look at his thoughts, uh, there's two things I want to point out. I want you to see, firstly, David's reflection on the Lord. David's reflection on the Lord. You come to verse 5 and he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So notice, firstly, he says, His soul will be satisfied. But why is his soul satisfied? There's a connection here in this whole sentence. In verse 6, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So this brings us to a reflection David is having in his heart and in his mind. He says he remembers the Lord when he lays down upon his bed. What does David think of in this time? He thinks of how wonderful God is. He thinks and ponders upon the goodness of God. We see other references where it expresses the same thing. Psalm 42, 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In the evening, he's thinking upon the Lord. Now, what a great way to close the day, right? Now, how many of us think upon the goodness of the Lord as we close our day? It should be a regular practice for us. I love how David shows us that he bookends his day. He starts with the Lord. He ends with the Lord. Early he seeks him. Earnestly he seeks him in the morning and also at night. And so how wonderful it is just to think on the character of God, thinking and meditating on his, his infinite nature, his, his holy character, his unfailing promises, his constant presence. Whether your day was great or whether it was bad, God was the same through the whole day, and he's the same through the night, right? So simply thinking upon the glory of who our God is, it brings satisfaction to the soul of God's children. Now, it's interesting to note how David vows to seek the Lord early and earnestly, and he concludes, the, concludes his days with the Lord too. Psalm 119, verse 55, he says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. And I think as we meditate on the Lord in the evening, that should probe us to think how we lived as a Christian through the day. How we lived as a Christian through the day. Because we all have ups and downs in our Christian life. We ought to examine our life in light of 
God and who he is. We should reflect on how great and good God is, um, even if we've had a terrible day. It doesn't change the nature of God, does it? Does a bad day change the nature of God? No, it doesn't. Does it change his love towards us? No, it doesn't. Does it erase his provisions and blessings? No. Did a bad day eliminate the bed that you get to lay your head on? No. All of these things that God has provided for us. Some of you probably saw on Facebook our our long day we had Monday. I mentioned it by way of, um, I don't know, just just an expression. But um, we were at Sam's Club for about six hours waiting on waiting on tires to get finished because of an unforeseen uh, lug nut issue. But sitting in Sam's for six hours with your wife and kids and a baby, that makes for a great day. Makes for a great day. But as I thought on that, you know, there's, was there other things I wanted to use six hours to do? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Time's precious, right? But in God's providence, that was the day he ordained for us. Why? Don't know. Don't know. But recognizing his providence helps us to have contentment with whatever it is that he brings to us in our days. David also said this in Psalm 4 and verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts upon your beds and be silent. They lie. Now, it's okay to get frustrated every now and then. You can be angry and not sin in that anger, we ought to pause for a moment and just think and be silent upon how God might be working in that day. Charles Spurgeon said, if day's cares tempt us to forget God, it is well that night's quiet should lead us to remember him. Because often through the day, we do get busy, and sometimes if we can uh, get out of sorts over things, we're not thinking too much about But when it comes to nighttime and things have settled down, you've got through the day, Reflecting on him in the night should bring us to see his providence. So that brings us to David's satisfaction. Notice the letter B, David's satisfaction. His satisfaction is rooted in his reflection. So he's satisfied based on what he's thinking about at night, based on what he's pondering on. And so in verse 5 he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. That's because of his nightly reflection upon God. Notice he compares the satisfaction of spiritual desires on feasting with rich foods, right? We all know the pleasure of sitting down and eating a big, good, delicious meal. It's one of our favorite things to do as Baptists. That's why we have Encore Sunday this Sunday. I forgot to announce that, so there's your announcement. We're eating Sunday if you're going to come with us, come be with us. So it's satisfying to sit down and enjoy delicious foods, wonderful fellowship, family and friends. Now, I'm kind of at a odd against this. I just started a diet that's making me eat a little bit less and not as much of the foods that I like. And so when I read this, I immediately thought how much I want to eat certain things and uh, how much I hate dieting. I don't do it much, but I'm trying to do it for health's sake and just to trim a little bit. But you understand what David's talking here about, about being satisfied with a, a good meal. So David's, David compares his spiritual satisfaction here as a physical meal that he's taken in. And true spiritual satisfaction, it's only found in the one true living God. And that's where he finds it. Reflecting, thinking, meditating upon the goodness of God. Speaking of the Lord, David writes in Psalm 36, 8, he says, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delight. 
talking about that spiritual nourishment that comes from our God. If only the rest of the world would see that truth, but we know that the rest of the world, they are spiritually starved and blind to what they actually need. The rest of the world around us, lost in sin, they seek to find satisfaction in everything that won't satisfy them. And when you try to give them the one thing that will satisfy them, Jesus, they immediately turn their nose and go the other way, right? But what we find is that all of God's people know that satisfaction and come to that satisfaction in Christ alone. We see a comparison, a, a contrast here in, in John 6, I think. John 6 and verse 30 through 37, I'll read this to you. This whole chapter is, is a great chapter in uh, Jesus contending with some people who really were uh, at odds against him. But you'll notice how Jesus really portrays himself as the only one who satisfies, the only one who brings this satisfaction we're talking about. In John 6 and verse 30 through 37, and we pick up in the middle of their conversation. He says, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I love that contrast there where Jesus, where they bring up the man in the wilderness Jesus points out, it wasn't Moses that gave you, because they worshipped Moses pretty much. It wasn't Moses who gave you that manna, it was the Father in heaven. And the Father gives you a manna that's a bread from heaven that will truly satisfy you. And what's their response? Oh, give us this bread, we want this bread. They're thinking physically, right? But then Jesus points to the spiritual truth. I am the bread from heaven. He that comes to me, he'll never hunger, he'll never thirst. He's speaking of the eternal satisfaction that only comes in Christ. And then he goes on to tell them, I've already told you all this. You've seen me, you just don't believe, right? He'll later tell them, the Pharisees especially, that you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. But you'll notice what he says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a comforting truth that is. Now the satisfaction in David's life comes from his reflection, and it brings praise to his lips. If you look at verse 7, look at verse 7 and notice, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. I will sing for joy. This is what David is expressing. He's endured a lot of trouble throughout his life. If there's one man who had a lot of ups and downs, it's a roller coaster. You look at the life of David, and that's it. I mean, from Saul to Absalom to everything in between, um, he had a lot of victories, but he had a lot of trials. And I think that's maybe one reason we identify a lot with David. He's a man after God's own heart, but man, he was human. He went through a lot. And through all that he goes through, he realizes, he understands that God is his God. He has been his help. It's always come from the Lord, and that is where his satisfaction is. And that is why he sings for joy. Notice with me number three, and that brings us last point here. We see the psalmist triumph in God. His triumph in God. And I want you to just see the, a couple closing things about David 
that David here, his life, David's life is lifted up by God's hand. His life is lifted up by God's hand. Though David is thirsty in that wilderness, though he is pursued by an enemy, yet at the same time he has great triumph in God. Notice what he says in verse 8. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Now, I, I just love the pursuit of David after God here. He says his soul clings to God as if it's glued to something. That's what that word conveys, as if it's glued to something. He, he clings to God. And that sentence expresses his loyalty to God in all of his distress and deprivation in life. He still holds fast to God. And that is what we all must do. That is what faith does. Faith clings. To God, we hold tightly to the Lord with all of our hearts, knowing that we are firstly held tightly in his hand. Joshua charged the leaders of Israel in his day not to be drawn off into the world and their false gods, but instead he tells them in Joshua 23, 8, he says, you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this day. So our, our calling as Christians through trial and triumph is to cling to the Lord. Cling to him, hold tightly to him, because he is the only one who upholds us. That's what faith does. We see that again in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, But the king shall rejoice in God, all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. Here's what David's recognizing, is that the Lord is the one who's going to bring the victory for him. The Lord is the one who shuts the mouths of liars, and he rejoices in his God in that fashion. Letter B, notice this, that David's enemies are put down by God's hand. While David is lifted up, David's enemies are going to be put down by the very same hand. How is David lifted up? We see the Lord is going to put down his enemies in verse 9 and 10. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. And this is the reality we've got to realize, too, because there are a lot of enemies in this world against God's people, against Christ, against his kingdom. And it often seems like, you know, they just get to have their way, doesn't it? But they're not going to have their way forever. The wicked will come to an end. Wickedness will come to an end. And God judges his enemies. God judges them. He judges them in history, and there will be a, a final day of judgment in which all wickedness will be brought before them. And what's their portion? Well, David, speaking in his day, he says, their portion is going to be for the jackals. They're going to, they're, they're going to, they'll be carcasses. They're going to go down to the depths of the earth. So the enemies of God and his people, they may be allowed to prevail for a time under God's providence, but their end will be sealed by God's sovereign hand. Because God's people are sealed from eternity past to eternity future. There's nothing, there's no enemy that can overtake them and undo what God's plan is for them. And so in connection with Romans 8, what we read earlier, Romans 8.31, Paul says of God's people, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's why Jesus said, don't fear man. You can destroy your body, but fear God, right? And so through David, I think we see him in a season of trial, but he manifests truly having a hunger and thirst for the Lord. His soul is thirsty. His soul is thirsty for God's presence, for his power, to be able to worship him in the sanctuary 
And though he's exiled from that place for a time, he still finds his satisfaction in God and rejoices in the victory that God will give him. I think David's heart really is a challenge to our own hearts. We ought to have thirsty souls. We ought to thirst for our God, thirst for that fellowship, thirst for that worship uh, with him, and know that he's the one who truly satisfies us, and he'll uphold us through whatever it is that we go through, whether it's up or down, trial or triumph. He's the God we can trust, and um, I rejoice in that today.